But I'll tell you what, so many people are angry. The number of people that are going to vote to recall this man is going to be so overwhelming so that even when they cheat, they're still going to lose. Really? I'm with you on the angry part. You made him that way. The cheating part, not so much. Maybe you know something I don't. We'll find out. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. Larry. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am. Stuck in the middle with you. Here I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, also in California, and Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN and Eureka's KGOE, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's, AM 950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Internet, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing, Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today for another thrilling edition of the Bradcast. A Pensacola, Florida family is grieving today after a 15-year-old girl with COVID-19 died at a local children's hospital this week. Victoria Ramirez was a sophomore in high school. She tested positive for COVID-19 almost two weeks ago. She had a fever and body aches. Later, she was sent home from the hospital, but then her dad, Hector, had to take her back. Within four or five days, her breathing started getting worse and worse, Hector Ramirez said. Doctors told him that Victoria had COVID pneumonia. Just after she started to get better, she stopped breathing. Hector had to leave the room while they tried to resuscitate her. He, uh, As he tried to uh, hold back tears, he said about 15, 20 minutes later, they could not bring her back. Hector says now that he th- he's, uh, he's thinking of getting vaccinated. That's right. Uh, he didn't get the shot for his daughter, and he feels some regret about it now. He says it's something that's going to be stuck with me for my whole life, thinking maybe I should have done that sooner, he said. Maybe I could have done something to help prevent this, he said. Not maybe, Hector. Definitely. He says Victoria was a healthy girl, and that changed quickly. He now wishes more people, especially parents, would take COVID seriously. I don't want any any other parents to go through what I did. You know, seeing my daughter um, perfectly healthy one day and then following a week and a half, she's she's gone. Hector has started a GoFundMe to pay for his daughter's funeral. 
That's in Florida, where Republican Governor Ron DeSantis is in court fighting like hell to prevent local school districts from imposing mask mandates, never mind vaccine mandates like the one instituted on Thursday here in Los Angeles by the Los Angeles County School District, the second largest in the country. Of course, schools all over the country with lax COVID procedures are already shutting down just weeks into the school year as hospitals are now overrun with patients. But here in California, where we and our governor takes the pandemic seriously, the news is much better up in Northern California. Some good news today for San Francisco schools. No COVID-19 outbreaks. None. Zero have occurred in San Francisco schools since they reopened to in-person learning in mid-August, according to the San Francisco Chronicle today, even as the highly contagious Delta variant has spread. That, according to data released Thursday by the city's Department of Public Health, just 13 city children have been hospitalized because of the coronavirus since the pandemic began in early 2020, and none are currently hospitalized, according to officials. The San Francisco numbers defy national trends that have shown large rises in cases and hospitalizations among school-aged children overall during the Delta surge. Nationally, communities with low vaccination rates and no mask mandates in public spaces and schools have seen skyrocketing pediatric cases. Since the city's public and private school classrooms reopened in recent weeks, there have been zero coronavirus outbreaks and fewer than five cases total reported due to in-school transmission, according to health officials on Thursday. San Francisco Unified, the public schools, have had zero confirmed cases of in-school transmission this fall and zero in the spring, according to the superintendent. This data affirms, he said, that, quote, the health and safety measures we have in place, including universal masking, improving ventilation, providing personal protective equipment and requiring all staff to be vaccinated, are keeping our schools safe. The district requires staff to be either vaccinated or tested weekly. The news out of San Francisco, of course, comes as President Biden on Thursday announced common sense, scientifically based mandates to try and get a handle on the surging yet again pandemic. That to predictable outrage from the right wing death cults who seem to think that helping to kill their fellow Americans, including a new surge in pediatric cases with children now comprising more than one quarter of the newly infected, they seem to think that's a strategy somehow for political success. In remarks from the White House late on Thursday, the president established several new broad vaccine mandates that require all federal employees, contractors that work with the federal government and health uh, care workers who work at facilities that receive Medicaid or Medicare to get vaccinated with no option to opt out with testing. All employers with 100 or more workers must either make sure that the uh, employees are vaccinated or they must be tested weekly. Employers must provide paid time off to those employees to get those vaccines. Biden also got blunt with Americans who still refuse to get vaccinated. My message to unvaccinated Americans is this. What more is there to wait for? What more do you need to see? We've made vaccinations free 
safe and convenient. The vaccine has FDA approval. Over 200 million Americans have gotten at least one shot. We've been patient, but our patience is wearing thin. And your refusal has cost all of us. So please do the right thing. But just don't take it from me. Me. Listen to the voices of unvaccinated Americans who are lying in hospital beds, taking their final breath, saying, if only I'd gotten vaccinated. If only. It's a tragedy. Please don't let it become yours. In fact, we have been playing some of those uh, hospital voices on this show in uh, recent weeks and months. Predictably, however, these common sense, constitutional, totally legal mandates, unless the GOP's stolen and packed U.S. Supreme Court majority decides to throw out more than 100 years of precedent, which, by the way, is completely plausible. These common sense mandates have caused, uh, right on cue, a right wing freak out. Desi Doyen, I'm sure you were shocked and stunned to see that over the past 24 hours. It's been uh, it's. Actually, I am kind of surprised at the level of the vitriol. I shouldn't be, but I kind of was. Well, you shouldn't be, because that is what they do. That is all they do at this point. That is all they know how to do, it seems. You know, get furious about things where they can pretend that their freedoms are being stolen from them. Republican Party chair Rona McDaniel uh, pledged to sue the Biden administration, calling Biden's actions, quote, unconstitutional and, quote, authoritarian and vowing to protect Americans and their liberties, their liberties to make others sick and die, I guess. Good luck, Rona. Wyoming's Republican Governor Mark Gordon declared that he has asked his state AG to fight the mandates in court. South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem, fresh off of ordering new restrictions on abortion, accused Biden of taking away people's freedom. She she also vowed to sue. Fox News, of course, is apoplectic, calling Biden the divider in chief, charging that he, quote, declares war on millions of Americans. War? Really? Because he wants them not to die with a perfectly reasonable vaccine mandate like the thousands of other such vaccine mandates that already exist everywhere in the country and have for decades? Here was uh, wingnut blogger Matt Walsh on Tucker Carlson's show last night. Yeah, well, I think it's interesting that we were assured for four years that Donald Trump is a tyrant, that he is, you know, Hitler incarnate. And meanwhile, he was like the least ty- tyrannical president we've had in, in, a, in a very long time uh, <laughs> with his, you know, with the way that he used his authority. No, we, we had to elect this rotting bag of oatmeal to get a real tyrant. A tyrant? Really? Really? Drama queens at Fox, Matt Walsh. But let's have more Hitler references, shall we? Because those are always persuasive. Here's uh, leading Ohio GOP Senate candidate Josh Mandel, who uh, pulled over on the road, pulled off the road in the middle of the night, apparently, to stand in front of a Trump sign to hint at responding with violence to the new vaccine mandates for federal workers and contractors. Hey, guys, it's Thursday night, September 9th. I'm driving through Western Ohio. We're driving through a cornfield near a town called Logansville, Ohio. My uh, blood is boiling, enraged at what I've seen from the White House today, trampling on our freedom, 
trampling on our liberty, trampling on what I took an oath to defend when I joined the Marine Corps. Joe Biden, I'm not even going to call him President Biden, he's not. Joe Biden is creating a constitutional crisis. And as I was driving through this cornfield, I literally came across this sign, this Trump sign. He is my president. <laughs> and I am hoping and praying that the Supreme Court justices that he appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court will do the right thing and stand up for the Constitution, stand up for our freedom, stand up for our liberty. And if they don't, I call on my fellow Americans, do not comply. Do not comply with the tyranny. And when the Gestapo show up at your front door, you know what to do. Wow. When the Gestapo show up at your front door, you know what to do. Sure, Joe Biden is creating a constitutional crisis. Josh, you nailed it. As we have discussed for quite a while, uh, it has uh, reached the point where Republicans have absolutely no actual governing agenda, period. It's a party now of conspiracy theories and grievance politics. They pretend that they are being oppressed, that they are victims, and that the world is unfairly out to get them, including, by the way, in all elections. Not because their policies, such that they have any, are unpopular, but only because of massive voter fraud in every election, despite the complete lack of evidence to support any of those claims. But it's voter fraud that is holding them down, holding down their otherwise massive popularity among the people. Tuesday, September 14 is Election Day here in California in the GOP-sponsored recall election targeting California's popular progressive Democratic governor, Gavin Newsom. Despite the fact that Republicans have been unable to win any statewide elections in the Golden State for years, Republicans, including the leading GOP candidate in the recall, far-right radio talk show host Larry Elder and his close buddy, the disgraced former president of the United States, they are certain at this point that if California votes no on the recall in order to keep Gavin Newsom in his job as governor, it will only be due to massive fraud. Their evidence to support this argument? Well, there actually isn't any. But it, that has not kept Larry Elder or the former president loser from making the claim even before Election Day has happened. Here's Elder at a rally in Los Angeles on Thursday lying about what happened in the 2020 election and about what is happening right now in the ongoing California recall. We have lawyers all set up, all ready to go to file lawsuits in a timely fashion. The reason the lawsuits did not did not work in the 2020 election, we know what happened there, is because the lawsuits were filed too late and many of them were dismissed on procedural grounds. <laughs> Courts don't like to overturn an election. So when you hear of anything suspicious, we've heard a lot of things that have been suspicious so far, go to electelder.com. We're going to sick our lawyers on them, file lawsuits right away. They're going to cheat. We know that. But I'll tell you what. So many people are angry. The number of people that are going to vote to recall this man is going to be so overwhelming so that even when they cheat, they're still going to lose. Okay, and I'll tell you what, Larry. If you find evidence of that cheating, let me know. I'll support you. Those comments from Elder uh, promising to file lawsuits for cheating, for which there currently is zero evidence, come from a man who has also argued women should not be involved in politics and that families of slave owners should be paid reparations. 
And a man who has vowed if Newsom is removed on the recall ballot's first question and Elder wins on the second question as to who should replace him, that uh, he will end all masking and vaccine mandates in the great state of California if he becomes governor, even as those mandates have made the state one of the safest in the nation from COVID. Elder's remarks pretending that the election is already unfair to him follow similarly evidence-free claims about voter fraud in the recall made just a day earlier by the former president. Well, it's probably rigged. They're sending out all ballots. It's all uh, the, the the ballots are, you know, mail-out, mail-in ballots. You know, look, they're, they're very good. The one thing they're good at is rigging elections, so I predict it's a rigged election. Let's see how it turns out. Yeah, let's see how it turns out. <laughs> yeah, if, uh, if the Republican loses, then it must be rigged, but if the Republican wins it's perfect it's fine yep that's how this works uh you know in a state by the way where registered democrats outnumber republicans two to one but if the democrats win it's only because it's rigged and where the democratic governor is reportedly pulling away in pre-election polling just before the final day to cast votes on tuesday But as we have been reporting, there are legitimate reasons to be concerned about the security and accuracy of the vote count in the California recall that after a far right wing county clerk in Colorado made copies of stolen election software in her county, which is almost identical to the software used to run elections here in California in about 60 percent of our counties. We've been reporting on this issue now for the past month since that software was released onto the Internet for download by anyone, alarming the nation's top cybersecurity and voting systems experts who late last week wrote an urgent letter about this to the California Secretary of State recommending, quote, emergency action to try and mitigate the threat that is now posed to the computer tabulation of both hand-marked paper and touchscreen ballots here in the Golden State. Well, finally, on Thursday, the Secretary of State responded to those scientists and to several longtime election integrity advocates here in the state with a face-to-face remote meeting. Finally, We will have two of the participants in that meeting here to explain what happened and if the California Secretary of State, Shirley Weber, now actually understands the threat that the experts have been trying to warn her and other state election officials about. That's next on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. California voters appear poised to deliver a solid endorsement of Governor Gavin Newsom, the Democratic governor, as opposition to the recall election mounts and Democratic voters in the state return ballots at a rapid pace. That, according to Reed Wilson at The Hill today, a new survey conducted by the University of California, Berkeley's Institute of Governmental Studies for the Los Angeles Times shows that 60 percent of California voters would reject the recall, while just 39% say they will support removing Newsom from office. Those results show a substantial change from late July when just 50 
percent said they would vote to retain Newsom and 47 percent said that they would vote to oust him a year before his term expires in this special recall. And that was what we reported on at the time back in July as a dead heat, according to a number of those polls. That seems to have now changed. The UC Berkeley survey is now the latest in a series of polls showing opposition to the recall growing in the closing weeks as Newsom and his allies blanket the airwaves and mount a furious get-out-the-vote effort ahead of Tuesday's Election Day. According to 538.com's polling average today, an average of all of the available recent surveys, support for keeping Newsom in his job among those considered to be likely voters is now outpolling those who want to see him removed by more than 14 points. Real Clear Politics, uh, they have their own poll of polls. That has also widened since we last reported on it, finding the no vote to not remove Newsom is now up by more than 11 and a half points. Pollsters and both Democratic and Republican strategists, according to The Hill, say the landscape in California has changed in recent days with the emergence of right-wing radio host Larry Elder, as the most prominent Republican challenging Newsom on the recall ballot, Newsom's campaign has focused on Elder's opposition to mask and vaccine mandates and has tied him to former President Donald Trump, who lost California by a huge margin last November. About 7.3 million people, or about 30 percent of California's registered voters, have now returned their vote-by-mail ballots already, according to a daily tally that is uh, conducted by the firm Political Data Inc. Registered Democrats so far have returned 53% of all ballots, while registered Republicans account for fewer than half of that total. Of course, following misinformation from Donald Trump throughout the 2020 election cycle, Republicans may prefer to vote in person on Election Day rather than by absentee vote by mail. So Democrats uh, would be wise to take little comfort from those numbers, at least in my opinion. Newsom's team has spent tens of millions of dollars on efforts to grow the turnout in a state where registered Democrats right now outnumber registered Republicans by a nearly two to one margin. In the final days, Governor Newsom has campaigned with Vice President Kamala Harris, Senator uh, Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts, and his campaign is airing advertisements featuring both Bernie Sanders and former President Barack Obama, urging Californians to vote no on the recall. On Monday, in fact, Newsom will campaign with President Biden himself. At the very same time, however, uh, as we have been reporting over the past month on the broadcast, cybersecurity and voting system experts have become very concerned, very alarmed about the security of the election here in the Golden State following the release of stolen software from Dominion voting systems during an otherwise ridiculous so-called Stop the Steal cyber symposium that was held by the MyPillow CEO and Trump conspiracy theorist Mike Lindell last month. The release to the Internet wilds of this purloined election management system or EMS software made by Dominion 
after it was allegedly stolen and copied by a rogue right-wing county clerk in Mesa County, Colorado. Uh, This has set off some pretty serious alarm bells among experts, security experts, voting systems experts, even as both national media and California election officials have sort of failed to respond to their alarm. We have been reporting on this story in detail here on the broadcast with interviews with several of the nation's top cybersecurity and voting systems experts in recent weeks as they have explained their concerns and how Dominion's election management system software used in about 60 percent of California counties and by the way, in about 30 states around the country, that software, that EMS software, as it's known, is in fact the keys to the election kingdom when it comes to running elections on computers. The EMS software controls everything from the creation of the ballots themselves, both hand-marked paper ballots and touchscreen ballots, to the tabulation of those ballots and the reporting of the results from the election. The software breach last month led eight of the nation's top cybersecurity and voting systems experts last week to pen an urgent letter to California Secretary of State Shirley Weber, warning her that, quote, emergency action is warranted. As of August 2021, they write, citing the release of the stolen software, thousands of unknown people can now study the code and find weaknesses to plan attacks on elections. The attacks, they write, can be deployed by non-technical accomplices, including voters, building maintenance personnel and election workers. Unfortunately, they say even extensive pre-election testing of the voting equipment may not deter or even detect Such attacks, they warned. J. Alex Halderman, one of the nation's top experts uh, from the University of Michigan, noted that the breach has, quote, really multiplied the number of people who are in a position to do harm to our elections by a very large factor, he said. Dr. Rich DeMillo, one of the scientists who signed on to last week's letter to Weber. He's the founder of Georgia Tech School of Cybersecurity. He's been a frequent guest on this program. He said, quote, the impact on the California recall election should not be underestimated. Duncan Buell, the uh, chair emeritus in computer science and engineering at the University of South Carolina, said, quote, it is imperative that California immediately address the breach of the Dominion Election Management System to provide the mitigation that can only be achieved by the use of hand marked paper ballots counted by scanners with the outcomes tested in thorough post election audits. The eight scientists, in fact, have now called upon Secretary Weber to immediately announce before the election, so it does not become a partisan issue, uh, a statewide post-election risk-limiting audit of the California recall results. On this program, just days ago, Buell, who was also one of the signatories of that letter, explained that recent polling has little to do with the question of whether voters will be able to have confidence in the election results after the polls close on Tuesday. I don't necessarily think either side should be breathing a sigh of relief because uh, the problem really is that the election system uh, needs to be secure and the election has to, the election process mm-hmm. 
has to be done in a transparent way that voters can trust and understand. And I think with the release of the software, it's hard for anyone Mm -hmm. to really feel that uh, what's going to happen is what ought to happen unless there is uh, a a statistically sound risk-limiting audit conducted after the fact just to make sure things got done right. Mm -hmm. This is a question of confidence, transparency, uh, and the fact that uh, we don't get to do elections over. No, we don't. Now, despite those warnings, the uh, scientists had received uh, little, if any, response from the office of California Secretary of State Weber, suggesting that either she didn't understand the concerns or she was not prepared to take action in response to them. At least until Thursday, when her office invited those scientists and several other election integrity, security and transparency experts and advocates in the state to a remote uh, video meeting to discuss the warnings and the solutions offered to try and help mitigate these concerns. Joining us today are two of those advocates who were on the remote video conference meeting with the California Secretary of State on Thursday. Emily Levy is the California Bay Area founder and director of Scrutineers.org, a nonpartisan online community of people working to protect U.S. elections. She, uh, Emily, has long been a leader in the election protection movement, going back as far as 2004. She's been involved in projects including lawsuits, election investigations, training election monitors, and as well, by way of full disclosure, she has been a colleague of mine at various times throughout the years, including as an occasional guest blogger at bradblog.com over the years. Uh, Emily Levy, welcome back to the broadcast. Glad to be here, Brad. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Also joining us today is Jim Soper, the creator and author of the election integrity website CountedAsCast.org. He is also from the Bay Area. He is co-chair of the California-based National Voting Rights Task Force and has otherwise been working on issues of election integrity for well over a dozen years at this point uh, here in California and beyond. Welcome back to you as well, Jim Soper. Thank you, Brad. It's great to be here. So you were both at this uh, remote uh, video conference meeting on Thursday with the California Secretary of State, uh, Dr. Shirley Weber, along with these top cybersecurity and voting system experts like Duncan Buell, who we just heard, uh, UC Berkeley's Philip Stark, who's been on the show many times, Georgia Tech's Rich DeMillo, the legendary cybersecurity and voting system white hat hacker Harry Hursty, all of whom signed on to that letter last week to Weber, uh, marked as urgent and explaining these critical new risks to the recall election. Emily, uh, let me start with you. In brief, what was the Secretary of State's message to you and the scientists and the other advocates at that meeting? Well, let's just start there. What what was the sense that you got uh, from the secretary? I'll be happy to answer that. Let me just say first that the way that meeting came to be is that the organization that Jim is co-chairs, mm-hmm. National Voting Rights Task Force, had also written a letter about these security concerns mm-hmm. and asking for a risk-limiting audit of the recall election to the Secretary of State and had been granted a meeting with, with her staff. And then yesterday, all of a sudden, they decided to include the 
this other group of, of scientists who had written the letter, mm-hmm. and the secretary herself self joined the meeting. So that's the, the, the invitation initially didn't come from her office. She was responding to correspondence that she got. Mm-hmm. So um, her, the message that they started out with is, yes, we know there has been th- that this uh, election management system software um, was released in Colorado mm-hmm. or from Colorado and was out on the Internet and that 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 creates new security concerns and that she did not think that there was time to do a full risk-limiting audit statewide. She expressed concern that because the state is in the process of rolling out a risk-limiting audit um, procedures for the elections, that if they did a rush job and flubbed it this time, that not her words, but mm-hmm. if they did a rest job this time and it didn't go well, that it could undermine the long-term plans for adding risk-limiting audits to the protections in our elections so in California. So ju- just to be clear there, uh, she was talking about risk-limiting audits, uh, sort of adding that to the general election procedures in California in the future, whether it's this November, next November, uh, as opposed to rushing it in time for uh, the 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 Tuesday recall, did did you get a exactly. did you get a sense at least that she appreciated and or understood the threat to the uh, California recall election that the scientists as well as Jim's groups have have been trying to warn her about since the release of this. Uh, it's an extraordinary thing for the release of this uh, Dominion EMS software uh, to the internet wilds. Did. Did she understand this grave threat, as the scientists have been describing it? She's definitely aware of the threat, and and I wonder about your response to this, Jim, but I didn't hear the level of alarm that I think is warranted. Jim, uh, let's let's turn to you here. Your uh, National Voting Rights Task Force, uh, as Emily noted, also sent a letter to the secretary uh, warning her about these concerns. your letter received less uh, p- public attention than the scientists did. Um, their letter was covered by the Associated Press on the same day uh, that it was sent to Weber. So I want to ask you about your specific letter. But quickly, if you could, like Emily, sort of give me your take on the meeting with Weber on Thursday, if you feel that she understood the, the threat to the recall election uh, that you guys have been trying to warn her about. Well, we saw her in Assembly Committee, Elections Committee, uh maybe four years ago, and she was the only one on that committee to understand the threat of Internet voting. Mm, okay. She's smart, and she got that. So I think she understands it. Although, to be clear, uh, there, there's there's no Internet voting involved in this particular case. No, no, but that she understood that the Internet poses a, a major threat. Mm-hmm. She was the only one on that committee to get it, mm-hmm. and it was rather disappointing. I think she understands the threat. Uh, trying to deal with it, and a big part of the problem is the shortage of time here. Mm-hmm. Trying to deal with it uh, is another thing. And there's some things they can do to be ready in less than a week. Mm-hmm. And there's some things that the full-blown risk-limiting audit, I think sort of a consensus was, we can't get that set up in time. There's too much that ha- has to be done before mm-hmm. even the ballots arrive and they're already coming in. Right. So that's not going to work. There is something called uh, ballot polling, this one audit, that 
that they could do. They don't have to keep track of as many details. It's not as effective, but it would be better than than doing nothing. Yeah, sort of a uh, scaled-down uh, version. And, and by the way, we've had Dr. R- or, uh, Professor Philip Stark from UC Berkeley. He's the inventor of the risk-limiting audit yeah. uh, protocol. Yeah. We've had him on the show many times, in fact, to discuss this breach. Yeah, and my understanding is that there's sort of a scaled-down version of a risk-limiting audit that could be done if the secretary jumped in and took action. But I'm not getting, Jim, uh, from uh, speaking with you and Emily and other people who were at that meeting, I am not getting the sense that uh, the secretary sort of has the same sense of urgency that the experts do here. Uh, Probably not. Sometimes you have to be a real geek to understand how, if I may say, a virus spreads. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you understand it, it gets scary. She may be not be at that level. I don't know. I think the purpose that that meeting had two two things. One was to have us say that this election will probably be okay, and I probably will. And the other thing then is that she asked that those of us who spoke to send in a little letter with some notes about what we think should be done and. My understanding is get, they've gotten those emails that were written overnight, and they're looking at them now. And they're, trying, they're going to consider what can we do out of all these suggestions. Jim, let me focus on the first part of what you just said there, that uh, your sense was they were hoping to get you guys and these scientists to somehow say that all is well. You noted that you think it probably will be. Of course, there's no way to know that. And more importantly, whether it is or isn't, uh, as I spoke about with uh, Buell and, and others, whether, you know, things if things work perfectly, if there are no problems at all as far as security goes, the fact is the public needs to know that. And uh, with a post election uh, audit of some sort, risk-limiting audit, that might allow the public to know, in fact, that everything went well. Uh, Emily, on that point about asking uh, the people on the call to sort of help the Secretary of State, I've now talked to several people after this meeting uh, who have all confirmed that, in fact, uh, and I don't know if it was the Secretary or somebody from her office, had asked the people on that call including yourself and Jim and uh, these eight uh, top scientists, uh, to be, quote, cheerleaders for the efforts by the state, by the security efforts by the state. Can you confirm, Emily, that, in fact, either uh, Shirley Weber or someone in her office actually asked this group of people to be cheerleaders for the security of California? Absolutely. That, That did happen, and I have to say it was quite surprising, especially when coupled with the turning down of our requests about how to make sure, you know, ab- about doing the risk-limiting audit. So, no, we won't do what you're asking, but we want you to be cheerleaders for the security of the election. And, you know, I will applaud any increase in security procedures that I'm aware that they're doing, uh-huh. um, but I, I'm certainly not in any pr- position, I don't think anyone there is, to put our reputations on the line saying, you know, we'll swear by the security of this election, especially if they're not going to be increasing auditing procedures. And uh, risk-limiting audit is only one of the ways that could happen. Um, another way is to tighten up the, some of the procedures already used in our mandated 1% audit. And so that's one of the things that the follow-up letters 
is asking. So things like making sure that all of the ballots that come in are eligible to be drawn for that 1% audit, whereas now it's only ballots that are processed by election night. And with this all mail-in election, that may be well under fewer percent, fewer than, than 50% of the total number of ballots. So that's something we're asking to have changed. Another thing is to have the, the digital images of the ballots shared publicly so anybody who doesn't trust the official count can go count the ballots in their county themselves or even in the whole state if they want to because they could have access to the digital images that's something that san francisco county is already doing and um, we encourage all the counties in the state to do because really transparency is what we need and that's very difficult to achieve in a system where votes are counted in secret inside of computers um, over the years Many of the people you've you've had on your show, as well as as you, Brad and and Jim and I, have worked toward making finding ways to make the elections more transparent, despite the ways that computers are used, and and we just need to do that as much as possible, um, and that includes people showing up to observe. What happens after the election in their county, and I hope we'll have a few minutes to talk about that. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Let me uh, just clarify a few points for folks who are not quite as election geeky as the three of us. Uh, these digital ballot images you're talking about, when when uh, ballots are scanned, optical, uh, hand-marked paper ballots, they still go through a computer. Uh, to be scanned, and that computer, in uh, many cases now with modern scanners, actually takes a photograph of the ballot. There's no reason that those ballot images that are taken cannot be released pretty much immediately on election night uh, to the public, so the public can sort of do their own count of the elections. Uh, and the 1% of uh, votes that you talked about in that uh, audit, that's sort of this flat audit. It's not as robust as a risk-limiting audit that the scientists are calling for that is already built into uh, California state law, and the scientists say it's not enough given the particular threat. Uh, Jim Soper, you were, uh, I, I meant to ask, uh, your group uh, National Voting Rights Task Force, in your letter to the Secretary of State, uh, you weren't pushing for risk-limiting audits. You were pushing for the release of those ballot images to the public. Is that correct? The ballot images at first, we do say we like risk-limiting audits. We were part of a group that got a law passed about two, three years ago to allow risk-limiting audits. And so we liked them, but in at least in this situation, it's going to be hard to pull it off. There would be, if we had the 1% manual tally, 1% of precincts, which is the system they've been using for a long time, mm -hmm. uh, if we had that, as Emily had mentioned, you cannot, in the system they have in now, they changed it a couple of years ago, and it was horrible, you cannot ignore half the ballots. Half the ballots yeah. that are not counted by election night that don't go into that 1% audit. Right. That's... You know, when, when you tell people ahead of time, we're not going to look at these specific mail-in ballots, mm -hmm. you just told anybody who wants to fiddle around where to go fiddle. Yeah, it's a roadmap. Because map. you, it's a roadmap. We fought that several years ago. That's the last time I was on your show was with that one. Mm -hmm. uh, and that needs to be corrected. I don't know what the special decree powers the secretary has, if she could buy the 
decrees say you're going to look at all the ballots, then you should go ahead and do it. But if this may require a change in the actual law, and we don't have time to do that. Well, and I'm... It's not, yeah, go ahead, Emily. It's not, looking, it's not looking at all the ballots. It's having all the ballots be eligible to be selected yeah. for right. that 1%. Thank right. And, you know, there has been uh, some question about what she can and can't do according to the law as Secretary of State at this late date, what she can mandate and what she can't. But the fact is, seem, you know, even if she doesn't mandate it, she can certainly say, look, given what has happened here, the Secretary of State's office strongly recommends that counties do X, Y, Z when it comes to post-election audits. That 1% audit written into the law, that is the floor, not the ceiling. I believe the counties can... You know, check as much of the vote as they feel necessary. Uh, Guys, let me get just a a couple of closing thoughts from each of you here. Uh, uh, Jim, you know, I get the sense that the secretary, who is a Democrat herself, just like the governor who's facing the recall, that they're sort of holding their breath. They're, you know, crossing their fingers. They're hoping everything works out just fine here somehow. I am not sure if that is a strategy for success. You know, I'm I'm worried about that. Uh, How important would you say it is for the secretary to take action before Election Day rather than after, no matter what the results are? You know, how important it is for folks on either side of this recall who might have questions about whether voters should have confidence in the computer tallied results? Shouldn't she at least put out some statement about these concerns? Again, I think they are working on that as we speak, almost, trying to figure out what to do. Yes, I would like to see anything that can get done, such as, again, repair the 1% manual tally so that we don't ignore, for audit purposes, half the ballots. That's just a huge gap. If we can get risk-limiting audits in there, that would be good. But you do need to announce this ahead of time because a big threat threat to the election is the people who are already claiming it's stolen. Uh, Emily, do you uh, expect that the secretary will take action before election day at this point? I would at this point be surprised if we see an announcement before the election about an audit, and I agree that that's absolutely essential. But I want to point out that our meeting yesterday was specifically about audits and not about other things that the secretary of state might do that would probably to to respond to this increased security threat that would probably be sensible to keep confidential. So if an audit is is the main thing she's going to do, or if she's going to to increase auditing, that would be really important to announce in advance. But I think there are possibilities of other actions she could take that we wouldn't know about, but that would make next week's election safer. And were some of the scientists on that call pointing out uh, those steps that she could take? Those were not within the scope of what we were discussing. Yeah. We were discussing specifically increasing audits. And I got to say that the scientists that I've talked to from, you know, from that letter, uh, both on air and off air, who have seen what the state is saying, well, we take these extraordinary measures. You know, we do uh, testing. California, this was from the AP article, uh, Jenna Dressner, spokesperson for the office, said California has the strictest and most comprehensive voting system testing use and requirements in the country. It was designed to withstand politic, uh, uh, potential threats. Scientists I've talked to said that no, none of the steps that they take are necessarily uh, able to protect against the theft of the Dominion election management software. 
Emily, I'll uh, finish with you here. Is there anything that voters uh, you mentioned uh, can do to help ensure public oversight and integrity in next week's election? As I know that your group, Scrutineers.org, actually focuses on public oversight of elections. It's true. We do. So I want to really encourage people who are inside California, and then I'll say what folks can do who are outside California and care about this. The folks inside California can contact your county election office or start out by looking on their website and see if you can find out which of the processes that happen after polls close, after the voting ends on Monday, are publicly observable and go observe. And because of COVID, it may be that some of those are observable actually remotely mm. um, on video streaming. So that's something that people can can do even if they're outside of California. Mm-hmm. So a couple of things specifically and briefly that are really important to observe are the signature authentication that happens on the signatures on the ballot envelopes that come in. Mm -hmm. And inside our Scrutineers membership site, we actually have a training that helps people be able to understand how signatures are authenticated so that you can be, you can understand whether that process is being done in a biased way or in a fair way. You'll actually learn how to tell whether signatures match or not in that training. It's two hours long. And then the second thing is, observing the audit itself, including and perhaps especially the random selection that happens to determine which which batches of ballots are actually counted by hand for that 1% manual tally. That's, that's, we have that's some materials the, about that as well. That, that's the 1% uh, manual audit that is built into the law right now, sort of the, the floor, the, the, the baseline audit that uh, all counties are supposed to do already by law across the state. Exactly. And there have been some situations where there have been errors made in that random selection, including announcing in advance of the election, at least once that I'm aware of, which batches were going to be selected, which again, as we mentioned before, that's the kind of roadmap to tell people where to go to cheat if they're going to cheat. So that's the kind of thing we teach people how to do in scrutineers. There's time to learn it and then volunteer next week, either in person in your county or to observe online if your county is streaming. So folks can come find out about that at scrutineers.org by joining our membership site um, and becoming a part of the community of people across the country that are helping make make elections more transparent. Emily Levy is the founder and director of scrutineers.org. They can be found on the Twitters at scrutineersus. Jim Soper is the creator and author of CountedAsCast.org and the co-chair of the National Voting Rights Task Force, in the, uh, uh, which can be found at NVRTF.org. That's National Voting Rights Task Force, and he can be found on the Twitters at Jim Soper. Jim uh, Soper, Emily Levy, really appreciate you uh, joining us today on the broadcast. Thanks so much, Brad. You bet. Thank you. You know, I'll tell you, a lot of people think that, uh, well, our election officials will take care of any problems, that they have their (laughs) eyes on everything. It's not. It is up to the people. It is up to we, the people. In this case, you got the secretary of state uh, who seems, frankly, kind of clueless about the threats that are being, you know, told to her by the top people in the nation. And she's saying, "Okay, great. Uh, Would you guys be a cheerleader to explain how wonderful and secure our elections are? I don't think she gets it. 
And uh, frankly, this is not anything new. It has always been up to we, the people, the public, to oversee our elections and and make sure they're tallied uh, correctly. The officials, you know, God love them for what they do. But, you know, elections need to be a public exercise. Yeah, and a very big part of that public exercise is the public actually going and doing it. Right. So, kind of necessary. Don't leave someone else. Don't assume someone else is going to do it. It's the public. It's groups like Emily and and Scrutineers.org and, uh, frankly, us on this show bringing this issue to the forefront in the first place. These are things you can actually do when you want to take action. Here's a thing that you can take action on. All right, quick break here in our uh, closing few minutes with some, uh, oh, it's kind of scary news. As if we need more of that, another uh, superstorm is coming in. Good news and bad news on that. Straight ahead, I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. That sounds ominous. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Yes, in fact, we've got some ominous news. Now we've got, uh, I said there was good and bad news. The good news, this storm is not going to hit the U.S. And that's about it for the good news as far as I can tell. Super Typhoon uh, do you know how to say this, Des? I don't. I, I haven't th- actually heard anybody say it out loud. So it's spelled C-H-A-N-T-H-U. I'm going to go with Shantu. And one of the reasons that Desi Doyen does not know how it's pronounced is because it has spun up so quickly and is now a Category 5 storm. In fact, a super typhoon. Super typhoon Shantu, as I'm going to call it. It has uh, maintained extreme intensity now for several days. It is now slated to make a direct hit on Taiwan over the weekend. The storm currently features maximum sustained winds of 180 miles per hour. That makes it a fearsome Category 5 storm. Frankly, it would be a Category 6 storm, I think. If, if we had one, but we don't yet. Because they don't go that high. Right. Yet, they don't have as a, you There note. wasn't a category for anything above the Category 5. So there's some talk about putting in a Category 6 now because really? of the winds that we're now seeing. Yeah. and so Due to man-made global warming, by the way. Yeah, because I think that it's... Category 5, I think, kicks in at like 150 or 155 or something like this. This is way above that, at least right now. It could cause significant damage as it moves across the highly populated island of Taiwan from south to north in a direct hit. Super Typhoon Shantou gained global attention from meteorologists when it put on a staggering display of rapid intensification. Uh, midweek with its maximum sustained winds jumping by 130 miles per hour in just two days. That's really fast. That's kind of unheard of. It happens very rarely. So here we go again. Another huge storm that spins up in record time as global warming has made these storms larger and more intense and seemingly now much, much more frequent. According to NOAA, only five previous storms on record have jumped from a uh, a tropical depression to a Category 5 equivalent in such a short period of time. As Andrew Friedman, no relation, notes over at Axios, rapid intensification is becoming more common due to, 
human-caused global warming from burning fossil fuels since it is causing ocean and air temperatures to warm. The air can hold about 7% more moisture for every 1 degree Celsius increase in temperature, which serves as energy for such storms. Yes, the hotter oceans provide the fuel that uh, makes these hurricanes so intense, and it's really dangerous that it's going to, it sounds like, rake across all of Taiwan. For the moment, let's hope it doesn't. It's uh, currently uh, churning north of the Philippines. It is forecast to continue turning north-northwest and gradually weaken to a Category 4 equivalent before making landfall in southern Taiwan on September 11. So Hmm. good luck, Taiwan. We'll keep our eyes on that. Uh, For now, good luck to everyone else. We all need it these days. (laughs) Uh, My thanks to my guests today, Emily Levy of Scrutineers.org and Jim Soper, Soper of the National Voting Rights Task Force. Of course, thanks to my producer, as always, Desi Doyen, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show or want to hear it again or want to share it with your friends and your family and your neighbors and your enemies, you can do so anytime. You can download it for free at bradblog.com. All of this, everything that we do is thanks to folks like you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to keep us talking on the airwaves about the stuff that a whole bunch of other people really don't like talking about that much on the airwaves. We'll keep doing it. Thanks to you. Bradblog.com slash donate. Drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Bradblog. I will see you there until we see you here next time. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.